following lecture was produced by the Gnostic Academy of Chicago, a nonprofit organization, and is one of many available for podcast, download, and transcription. You can visit chicagonosis.org to find courses, articles, scriptures, commentaries, and other valuable resources that address a wide variety of spiritual subjects, interests, and needs. Through the generous support of listeners like you, the Gnostic Academy of Chicago has produced online courses, lectures, and articles freely available worldwide. If you have benefited from this knowledge, help humanity through making a tax-deductible donation at chicagonosis.org. If you are interested in attending the Gnostic Academy of Chicago in person, you may view our online class schedule and freely register at meetup.com slash chicagonosis. The Chicagoland Gnostic Academy provides humanity with the necessary means for transforming suffering and acquiring personal knowledge of the divine. With this purpose in mind, we now begin the lecture. May all beings be happy. saw from the meditation, I'm pretty sure we can find a person close to us in our life who embodies perhaps the highest ideals. Maybe not perfect, but has the character of something we wish to emulate, that which we aspire to. Perhaps our mother, our family, siblings, whomever it may be. The fact is that such compassion or love is embodied. It is personal. It is experiential. It is something deep within the profundity of being. It is not merely limited to one individual in history, as exemplified by Christmas. It might seem strange that when we talk about Christmas and Christ, that we refer to something trans-historical, not merely limited to one moment at one time, but as the birth of divine being within all people. We celebrate the birth of Christ because he embodied a very high level of being, a very rare development that is very difficult to achieve. But the truth is that it is possible for every person to learn to experience and to incarnate that. That is why we are talking about the birth of the inner Savior, not merely the physical personality of Jesus, although his caliber, as we were implying, is truly incomprehensible. It also sheds light on the fact that Christmas in fact, is a very somber event. I know in our modern times, we have a sense of joy and altruism, of giving, of compassion, of Christmas spirit. But the truth is that this is a very solemn and serious event. Christmas comes from Christ Mass. And the term Mass in Latin, you know, is very um, significant. 
it has a lot of parallels to the Jewish tradition. Matzah, the unleavened bread that the Israelites ate as a symbol of escaping Egypt. And metaphorically for us, we must escape from our own inner Egypt, the enslavements to passion, fear, pain. And to eat unleavened bread means to eat the substance of God. A substance that is pure, without yeast, without the artificial, without the superfluous things we give to it, which is something we see in our current holiday with our traditions. You know, we, we celebrate Hallmark cards and, you know, these things which are pleasant and good. But the reality is that the birth of Christ in an individual, while a beautiful event, is something tremendous and serious. The term mass also relates to the Greek, mesos, meaning initiation. And that initiation is our own life. It is what we live. It is what we perform. Not as a matter of belief, but of being. And so the Eucharist is a symbol of that. It is a symbol of internalizing Christ. And that Christ comes from the Greek, krestos, which means fire. It also means anointed one. That anointment, while symbolized by baptism, is universal to all religions. There is ritual cleansing in Judaism, many faiths, even Islam, wudu, washing of the hands, the face before prayer. And water is a profound symbol of creation, of birth, and more importantly, of sexuality. Now, the thing about anointment and to become like Christ is the anointment is a very specific work relating to the work with energy. Because we know energy is the impetus of life. When we wake up in the morning, we have a certain sense of how much energy we have to get through our day. And more importantly, when we save energy, not only mentally, emotionally, physically, we have a surplus, a fountain of life by which to give birth to something truly transcendental and beyond. And that anointment is precisely, you know, we talk in terms of yoga, how through breathing exercises, one takes energy of the creative force, raises it up the spine to the mind. And so the physical ritual of anointment is spiritual, psychological. It is a practice in which our mind is enlivened by the power of Christ, the energy of creativity, of life, of being. And so Christ is not a name. It's a title. It's a title given to anyone who lives and embodies this truth, who is initiated, who experiences it and develops it. And then Christos, meaning fire, the Greek god of flames, 
also ties in with the Hebrew. And historically, Jesus, as a master, was the embodiment of um, the Jewish tradition, the mystical Kabbalah, and the Greek philosophy. He embodied and he expressed in his name these traditions. Christos, and the Hebrew, Yeshua. Yeshua in Hebrew, read from right to left, means Savior. And Yeshua, Yod He Shin Bav He, embodies the sacred name of God. Yod He Vav He is precisely Yod Hava, Jehovah, the sacred four letter name of God. And in the middle, you have Shin. And the letters in Hebrew represent principles, forces, qualities of the heart, and the mind and the being. Shin is fire. And we know from the menorah, you have a candelabra with basically nine points, which is also very symbolic. And Shin represents the candle with three wicks, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Three forces, three powers, three intelligences, which unite within the individual who is prepared. In the book of Hebrews, it states, For our God is a consuming fire, and that fire is energy. It is the power of life. That fire in us is not active. It is dormant. It's in a passive state. It has to be activated. It has to be purposefully worked with, intelligently, intentionally, daily. Otherwise, it is dead. Faith without works is dead, said James. And while there are certain graces we receive from divinity as a work or as a result of our work, the reality is that we need to make effort. Something if we have to live through fulfilling divine law, symbolized by, in Hebrew, mitzvot, similar etymologically to matzah, the bread of life. Christ is intimate to the individual, a universal intelligence which has been manifested within any prophet who is fully prepared. Many initiates incarnated Christ. And these are the founders of all the great religions of the world. And despite their example and their character and their level of development, the reality is that we have to give birth to Christ in us. It would be useless for any prophet to come to humanity to teach religion if we do not practice it or if we do not live it. There was a, a Catholic saint by the name of Angelus Silesius who gave a very beautiful poem, emphasized this fact. Though Christ a thousand times in Bethlehem be born, and not within thyself, thy soul will be forlorn. On the cross on Golgotha thou lookest to in vain, unless within thyself it be set up again. Going back to the mysteries of anointment, his crucifixion was on Golgotha, which means place of the skull. Because the fires of the Holy Ghost 
people call it Kundalini, must rise to the mind. Whatever the name we give to it, doesn't matter. Shekinah, Tara in Buddhism, Athena. She has to go up the mountain through the cross. And that cross is a marriage. Vertical phallus, horizontal uterus, a marriage. Because the power of life and sex is the power that gives birth, the power that creates life, physically and spiritually. You must be born again, mentioned Jesus. And that birth is an entirely sexual problem. It's involved in a marriage. And that husband and wife together, through their harmony and union and mind, heart, body, and spirit, have the groundwork by which to enter passion, the passion of Christ, the hardships of life, the circumstances and ordeals that really extract the worst from our being, so that by facing our own sufferings, we learn to enter the death of the imperfections and therefore achieve the goal, resurrection, when the soul is united with divinity inside. This is why Salman Vihar mentioned in his book, The Great Rebellion, that the belief in a statue will not produce change. The belief in a person in history will not transform the mind. It is an active work of a marriage. And that Christ is something so indefinable, but profound and beautiful, that we must experience it for ourselves. And that a mere belief in an, a prophet will not save us. Faith and dedication to the inner Christ is what saves. Because we each have our own light, like a ray that unites us to the heights, to the origin. People can never conceive of the intimate Christ in the heart of the human being. The masses only worship the statue of Christ. That is all. And so, as I was emphasizing with Christ as a universal principle, there are many initiates in history who were born on the 25th of December. Mithra and the Greeks. I believe in the Egyptian mythology, it might be Oros. You have Dionysus in the Roman mythology. And all this indicates that during the winter solstice, when sunlight is most dim, is when the birth of the Savior emerges. So physically, it's also a time in which, because there's less sunlight, there also is much spiritual force in nature that is working very intensely. And it's a very opportune time to increase our spiritual practice because the energies of Christ are very intense, very active, very profound. Now, metaphorically, 
this is even more profound. We receive Christ in the worst circumstances, in the greatest darkness of our life. In a sense, we have a type of conversion, almost, when we know we hit rock bottom. And we, leap, we look for spirituality or traditions to guide us. Initiatically, spiritually, the winter solstice is very deep, very profound. Because when an initiate is preparing him or herself to incarnate Christ, they suffer the maximum. It's very difficult to reach that stage in which there's uh, enough stability in the psyche and development of the soul by which to receive the voltage of the sun, S-U-N, but also S-O-N. And this virgin birth of Christ is precisely, as we're implying, the work of a marriage. We have Joseph and Mary. And while the Bible explicitly states that Mary knew not any man, it's implying to not knowing her husband in a lustful way. Knowledge in the Bible is etymologically related to sex. Adam knew his wife and begot Cain. So-and-so knew his wife and begot Seth. That knowledge, to use the Hebrew term, is da'at, the knowledge of a marriage, the spiritual wisdom that is born when the couple is conserving their force and through love, elevating the, the fires of divinity, step by step, up the 33 vertebrae of the spine, the 33 years of Jesus, the 33 years of Freemasonry, up to Golgotha, and that spiritual birth is only possible when we have the power of the Holy Spirit active, the power of life. In the book of John, we know that spiritual birth is allegorized by Jesus to Nicodemus. He says he must be born again, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the, into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Water, we already mentioned. The waters of life. The water that can bubble like a fountain and appease the thirst of our suffering. Because it is the energies of life. Because it's the energies of life which, when cultivated with love and purity, is what gives birth to something superior. It gives birth to a mind, a heart, and a will that can resonate with Christ. Because otherwise, without an intermediary, we'd be dead. If that energy tried to enter us, we'd be annihilated. There's no, volt there's no circuitry to co uh, conduct that amount of voltage. And so the water and the spirit means the sexual energies, which when they're saved and when they're harnessed with the spirit, 
that you give birth to something superior. We already know that which is born in the flesh is flesh. But many people do not know how that which is born of the spirit is spirit, not belief. This is a marital act transformed into a sacrament of Rome, amore. And so people often think of the birth of Christ as an immaculate conception, that there was no sex involved. And that's a misconception. The reality is that there is a way to give birth through sexual connection without orgasm, without lust, without impurity. Because those waters can give birth if we know the method, when they're saved. And an immaculate conception is precisely that, pure sexuality, not abstention, not avoidance, not renunciation, transformation. And Christ is born in a manger, born among animals, because this is a symbol of our mind. Even if we enter, say, degrees of initiation, as we talk about in Kabbalah, the mystical Jewish tradition, where we're working with energies relating to our physical body, Malkut, our vital energies, Yesod, our emotional energies, Hod, our mind, Netzach, and our will, Tiphereth. Even then, there is still imperfections. We have a lot of desires symbolized by animals. So at this point, when a person becomes a master of this level in the middle of this tree of life, going higher towards divinity in terms of psychological and spiritual degrees, that person has now the opportunity and the ability to receive the divine. But the problem is this. Even at that point, we have a lot of darkness, which is why on December 25th, the darkest day of the year, is when one can incarnate Christ, symbolically. And those animals are pride, anger, vanity, lust, attachment, all our defects, all our errors. But we know that this birth is a tremendous cosmic event because three magi visit his nativity. A black king, a white king, and a yellow king. Obviously people who read the Bible like a newspaper are often associating them as in terms of race, different parts of the world. But what is a magi, a magi? In the Indo-European root word, means priest, magush in Persian, which was the root of magician, someone who performs real magic. That magic is not superstition. It is the ability of a um, initiate to become a vehicle of Christ, to be able to express divinity for the congregation, for, for humanity. And so they see a star above the birth of Jesus, and they go to visit. If we reach this level, we become a real magician, a magi, a priest. But there are degrees among the priests. And those colors, black, white, yellow, refer to 
a quality of development or levels of perfection. It's one thing to become a master. It's another thing to become a perfect master. So blackness in the sense really refers to impurity of mind, darkness symbolically. Refers to the putrefaction of our own desires, lust, pride, anger, which is real, uh, very intense in most people. That darkness is our own mind, our own ignorance. It means to be very heavy with defects. A white king is a master who's reached the top of this powerful glyph, who has no ego, no defect, pure. But the person is not yet in the high stages of spiritual development. A yellow king is a resurrected master because now they have a full consciousness that is the gold of the spirit. They are fully perfected. So these three kings represent purities and levels of the psyche in terms of if we reach this degree of mastery, we begin as a black king. I believe in um, the Old Testament, you have three kings in the scripture, such as Saul, the first king of Israel, I believe, followed by David, and then Solomon. Saul, or Saul, in Hebrew means Sheol, hell. That master is still in hell. They have a foot in the door to go up, but they have to eliminate the impurities of the psyche, and eventually they may become like David, David, a white king. If they eliminate all of the manger from their psyche, all of the animals of their imperfections, but a yellow king, a gold king, is Solomon. Highest priest of Israel, a real Magi. And in this way, by becoming a gold king, one illuminates their Christmas tree. So this tree of life is the Christmas tree, perfected. In us, these levels are not known or they are merely empty of light because we don't have the force available through cultivation to illuminate that part of us. And the Christmas tree is also reminiscent of the burning bush from the book of Exodus, where Moses, Moshe, born of water and fire, according to his Hebrew name, is given a vision where he sees his inner God as a tree and the light of Christ fully illuminated in it. Remember that our God is a consuming fire, Christ. And that fire and that tree spoken to Moses and said, Eheye, Asher Eheye. When Moses asked, what is your name? By what are you called? He said, I am that I am. Or I will become what I must become. Being. Presence. And the thing is, even Jesus later on in the New Testament, which got him into trouble. Before Abraham was, I am. It's the same fire. The same intelligence. And when that fire is 
illuminating up our tree of life, our spine, we celebrate Christmas, Christ Mass, the reception of Christ in us. The angel of yod appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. And Moses saw that through the bush, though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. And it's an interesting symbol. We think of fire as something destructive. It destroys what it consumes. But this is a fire that gives life. And that the wood of the tree of knowledge and the tree of life are ever sustained. Because that is the same rege uh, regenerating force that constantly gives more light and more light. And so one other thing about the Christmas tree too, in relation to the star of Bethlehem, is that the three magi approached the birth of Jesus because of a star. And that star, which is put on the top of the Christmas tree, in Kabbalah is known as Ein Sof. So above this tree of life, above these higher degrees of divinity and being, which is manifested reality, is the profound source from which all life emerges, the abstract absolute space. In that sense, in the Bible or book of Genesis, it states, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God floated above the waters. Because that abstract space is the ocean of being. No self, but the true identity. Limitless light in a really mysterious sense. It's like darkness, but also it's, there's a light there that is indefinable, uncreated. Ain Sof is like a star, a point of light. And all of us have our own star which shines in the void, which we can experience in meditation. And that light is the real being and is limitless happiness and is the goal of any true Christian or Gnostic or Sufi or Muslim. That light is truly the source of all being and shines upon the perfected Christmas tree well, we perfect the work and become like Solomon, the true golden king of the divine realms. Santa relates to Saint Nicholas. He's an interesting figure in history. And his tradition is very deep. He's the origin of gift giving. He's the patron saint of sailors, merchants, archers. For me, most importantly, repentant thieves. Children, brewers, pawnbrokers, unmarried people, and students in diverse cities and European countries. Obviously, sailors are those who go from port to port, never have a home. They're constantly moving. And spiritually speaking, we are all like that. We're looking for port. Merchants, people who buy and sell, maybe make business. In a literal level, obviously, there's that meaning. But in a sense, all of us are like merchants in the temple. You know, trading the value of the spirit for materialism. And so we seek to perhaps, like in the New Testament, overturn the tables, our own mind, our own greed. Archers, which is interesting because what does an archer do? They fire at a point. They never waver. And in fact, to sin is an archery term. You fire to the left. You miss the mark. You miss the goal. So archers, we, and spiritually speaking, we seek to hit the target. Repentant thieves, you know, we all have 
things in life perhaps we borrowed. And in many ways, the mind is like a thief, taking ideas, or sometimes people steal attention or money, I mean, materially, but also psychologically. So we seek to become like the good thief crucified next to Jesus, who only learns to, you know, steal that which is in the possession of our own defects and give it to divinity, give the energy of life to him. Other parallels, children, brewers, and a, brewing is also an alchemical tradition, you know, fermentation. In the, in the European tradition of alchemy, take an impure substance, make it pure, or you transform it into something else, into the wine of the Spirit, turn water into wine. And that first miracle was performed by Jesus at a marriage, which is a symbol of, you know, giving birth to the soul. So he gave the tradition of gift giving primarily because not only of his generous spirit, but representing the Christian value of sacrifice. We know that Santa's in the North Pole and in the North we have the Aurora Borealis, the Northern Lights. It's interesting because these Northern Lights, this profound phenomenon, you know, have a spiritual significance. There are some, I believe some on Vior said that the Northern Lights are the astral body of Jesus because he integrated psychologically with this earth. And those lights are literally the aura of his internal being. And it has a great beauty. Symbolically speaking, the North is up the head. And we must give life and light to our mind. What are these lights? They are gifts. And those gifts are visions, spiritually speaking. We sit to meditate. We calm our mind. We relax. We concentrate. We focus on our own inner divinity. And in many ways, through this work, we start to have dreams. We get glimpses, flashes, visions, waking experiences in the dream state. These are the northern lights. Those lights are gifts. And obviously Santa is a myth, comes from the north. He's a representation of a um, symbol of Christ, Christian generosity, who visits good children, you know, um, Symbolically speaking, we must become like children to enter the kingdom of heaven. Good children get presents. Bad children get coal. Going back to the symbol of blackness, coal is like a, it can give light and when you heat it and give fire and light and keep you warm, but it's also very dirty. That's our mind. And that coal, obviously, if you compress it through great pressure, it's how you form a diamond. So from the impurity emerges the purity, like the lotus in Buddhism. So what does Santa do? Christ, he descends down our chimney. And Santa must work through our spine, our chimney. And the base is where the fire exists, the creative energies. So the northern lights, the aurora of dawn, the star of heaven, shines light in our being when we learn to make that energy a conduit so that we can receive 
those higher forces and receive presence, spiritual benefits. You know, it's good to have celebrate Christmas and material things. Beautiful tradition, but this is the symbolism of it. Why people used to practice this. Because internally, spiritually, they would get many gifts. Samadhis or heavenly experiences. We also have the reindeer. We included the tree of life here. Santa, the Holy Spirit, in a sense, drives nine reindeer. Santa, you could say is Christ or the top of the tree of life, even Keter, the Father. And has nine spheres or nine elements that he works through. His sleigh is operated through the reins because he has command of all this. Even in Wagner's opera, Die Valkyrie, Wotan has nine daughters. He's Valkyria, the spheres of heaven. And I included these names here because I never remember. Dasher, Dancer, Prancer, Vixen, Comet, Cupid, Donner, Blitzen, and Rudolph. And Rudolph obviously is the most favorite because his nose is full of light. And the nose, we know from yoga, the root of the nose is the third eye. When that's illuminated, you can guide the sleigh because you see spiritually what you need to do through your clarified imagination. Even Pinocchio, when he lied, his nose would go long. It's the same myth. Because the truth, the atom of the Holy, uh, better said, the atom of the Father, the truth is in between the eyes. And interesting about Santa, you know, his colors are black, red, and white. It's a parallel to the three magi, just a little differently. Instead of gold, you have red. And red, crimson, is the robe of resurrection. So golden vehicles, those are one thing. The crimson robe of a you know, fully perfected master, too. It's the same meaning. We also have the mistletoe. You know, beautiful tradition. Kissing under the mistletoe with your loved one. From the Nordic myth, Frigg, the divine mother, lost her son Baldur due to an arrow made of mistletoe. And she vowed that, you know, mistletoe would kiss anyone beneath it so long as it was never used as a weapon. So we talked a lot about the tree of, no uh, tree of life, but here the mistletoe is the tree of knowledge. The tree of knowledge is the knowledge of how to use the sexual force for divinity. It is the energy that can give life. It is the energy that can kill. It is what can heal. It is what can wound. And even this finds its parallel in the book of Exodus, I believe, or when the Israelites were in the wilderness, bitten by fiery serpents. Seraphim is the Hebrew term. And Moses asked for blessings from divinity to heal his people. He said, build a bronze serpent on a staff, and if anyone look upon it, they will live. And bronze is an alchemical symbol. Copper, tin. Woman, man. Venus, Jupiter. Husband and wife. The bronze serpent of the Holy Ghost, the fiery serpent Kundalini, which rises with knowledge through a marriage. And that is why couples kiss under the mistletoe. It is the tree of knowledge, the tree of alchemy. And that is how this energy is not used as a weapon.
because that force is so powerful that it can catalyze our development spiritually or can lead us to suffering. The spirit of Christianity is selfless service and sacrifice to give. The most important gifts are not material with donations or money. The greatest service is when we give to someone even when it hurts. Maybe we sacrifice our pride. We work a career or job in which clients maybe treat us like we're a doormat. Or our marriage or relationship, our friends. There's always a situation in life in which we have the most conflict. It's going to be idiosyncratic to every person. And whatever that may be, real giving is when we sacrifice our own pain, our attachments, and do what is right. And not easy. But that giving is really what Christ meant by denying oneself. Sacrifice, I mean, is an ancient idea which people associate often in the Old Testament terms with killing animals. In a sense, those stories of like Abraham killing um, or about to sacrifice his son Isaac and instead being guided, you've proven yourself. Sacrifice this animal. It's a symbol of sacrificing our passions. So that is how we receive by giving. Not merely of our, our wealth or money or materialism, but really from our spirit, from our consciousness. Because by giving is how we receive. You know, we help others in our community to a degree. We receive blessings from our own inner Christ. So to celebrate Christmas, there's some resources we provided. There's a video from Glorian Publishing called Spiritual Strength from Blessed Food and Drink. It's how to perform the Eucharist at home. I suggest you watch it and learn it. It's not necessary to go to a temple or to be a part of a group to perform the Eucharist. It is something that can be performed by anyone. Now, obviously, people who are working with the creative energies, working with transmutation or pranayama, working with the perfect matrimony, will have energy and power. And in that way, when the spine is illuminated, there's more force by which to bring divinity down. And the Eucharist is a powerful practice in which we ask our inner Christ, give us strength, give me light. You can pray the Our Father in English or Latin, whatever is convenient. Bless the bread. And instead of wine, we use grape juice. We don't have to use alcohol. Unfermented wine, grape. And that is the blood becomes the body and blood of of Christ. And that way we receive energy and strength for our work. We also have a course here from Glorian called um, Meditation Essentials. And this practical course will teach you how to meditate on something. And the best meditation on Christmas is to meditate on the nature of Christ. Not from something outside, but inside. And lastly, we included a lecture from Glorian as well called Selfless, I believe, Service and Sacrifice. It's from their Baba Chakra course where they emphasize many outlines and practices for how to give to our communities and families in a way that um, is personal to us. So if you have questions, feel free to ask. Sure. Um, 
Well, thank you um, for the presentation. Sure. Um, I have a question. So if somebody, uh, if I, you know, if I see somebody like uh, later on today and they ask me about uh, the talk and about um, what I got out of it, you know, I might say the talk is like sort of starting with um, uh, Jesus and Christmas and sort of connecting it to finding connections, associations with like Kabbalah, like Kundalini Yoga, like various kind of spiritual systems, as well as like a lot of the um, um, kinds of uh, um, sort of myths and legends of like Christmas, like St. Nicholas, Santa, you know, Rudolph. Um, is, would you say that's accurate? Yeah, I mean, we're, and this, we look at the, the root of the faiths, especially like, I think it's easy to fall into association, like, in a sense of a comparative religion, like, we're looking at all the interconnectedness of things, which has its use. But the problem with that tendency is often that it loses the depth of the practical application. Like, what does this actually mean in a person's practice? You know, so while we talk about a lot of elevated things and how they all connect, more importantly, we always like to end with like, here's exercises you can do to experience this. And so, you know, we want to explain the heart of what these traditions mean. It's the I doctrine, the doctrine of appearance to correlate. And there's a level of, there's a necessity for that to, you know, to a degree. But the important thing is that we follow the heart, which is the, we call the heart doctrine. It's what we live and experience. And, and so that's why I say Salman Vior's writings are very powerful because he does compare religions pretty synthetically. And then sometimes so casually that for, People who are not edu you know, not familiar, or get offended because, like, why would you compare Jesus to Buddha? And, but you know, in a sense, taking for granted that, you know, not everybody has seen the synthesis of where it all comes from. So we like to explain the heart, and more importantly, practices like in his books, so that we can verify these things. So for those who aren't familiar with this teaching, and what, when you talk about the heart of this lecture and the inner savior being born in us what is the method for that i know it's long and it's something we talk about over time but in synthesis if you could sum it up perfect matrimony work in a marriage so a couple can learn to conserve their sexual energy and through prayer and mantra and you know devotion to divinity learn to take this sexual energy and elevate it up the spine to the mind to the heart and that energy, with time and practice, rising vertebra to vertebra as the power of Kundalini, or the power of the Divine Mother, the Virgin Mary. She is the one who is the virgin that eventually purifies our body so that it becomes a temple of God. And when the body is purified, level by level, degree by degree, we're able to reach a point where our mind is virgil enough, pure enough, and our body's ready that we can receive that energy. So the perfect matrimony and synthesis is the work of a couple that awakens what's known as Tara in Tibetan Buddhism, Athena, the Divine Mother, the power of sex, the Holy Ghost, that allows an initiate to be able to express the higher truths of the being. And there are many explanations. There's many explanations given in Salman Vera's book, The Perfect Matrimony goes into extensive detail. You know, 
I suggest that if you're new to this. And so we talk a lot in this tradition about the three factors for the revolution of consciousness, and you've just outlined the factor of birth, which I think is what this was emphasizing in today's lecture. But you also hinted at some of the other two factors that are death and sacrifice. And without death and sacrifice, birth is not possible. For something to be born, something else has to die. We talked about the animals in the manger, and we talked about the Black King and how all of us have one foot in hell, right? At least one foot, maybe two. Um, so the factor of death is working through meditation, through prayer, through reflection on oneself and one's actions in order to understand what in us is not correct, is missing the mark, and to be able through comprehension, through understanding to change, to die to that which might be pride or anger, and to be born in a virtuous way. And that is, as you, as you mentioned briefly, a sacrifice. It takes effort. It takes willingness to change, to sacrifice my anger at someone, and instead to reflect on why that anger is not going to get me what I need or help that person, and to then choose to let the anger go and working with divinity, working with transmutation to transform that strong burning energy of anger into love and goodwill, forgiveness. That's a work that we perform through sacrifice, but with the help of divinity. So I think it's also important to mention that death and sacrifice are really crucial to give birth to the inner savior and divinity within us because it's not possible through transmutation alone if we don't have these other two factors. And that synthesize in the saying of Christ, if any man would follow after me, let him deny himself, bear up his cross, and follow me. Deny oneself, annihilate the ego. Die to our defects, mystical death. Carry your cross was today, alchemy. Work with the marriage, the creative force. And follow me, following him means serving humanity, being compassionate and giving. Without those three, there's no foundation or momentum to really master these or master the incarnation of Christ. There has to be a degree of that. And obviously all of us may have a predisposition to one factor than another. Some, some people can be more devoted to working on the ego and eliminating desire, but not as much working on transmutation. Or maybe someone is very giving serving the community, but maybe lacking one other, you know, element. And the important thing to remember is that all three must be used. There's uh, three forces, to use uh, Gurdjieff's tradition, especially affirmation, negation, reconciliation. And that applies to the top of the tree of life, too. Mm -hmm. To affirm the Father, to follow Him, to affirm divinity is Keter, the truth. Deny oneself is Hokmah, Christ. Because by denying our desires, we learn to receive the force of Christ and to uh, bear up our crosses, Bina, the Holy Spirit. So those are the laws of those higher spheres. And we need to follow all three you know, in harmony. Would you say it's if you work on the service part of it, doesn't that also affect your ego? Like when you find yourself giving, then you kind of can remove your ego at the same I feel like those play off each other. It can, you know, and, and for 
it depends too. I mean, sometimes maybe giving to, in some circumstances, it give us pride. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that's why we have to be careful. Like, okay, let not your left hand know what your right hand doeth. Yeah. You know, and I know in the Quran, they mentioned the left hand path symbolically is a path of um, egotism. The right-hand path is the path of the initiates, the sun and moon, solar lunar. But sometimes, you know, we have to find the career or job or whatever we're doing to situations where we can give, but not to feed our pride. But in a sense, it's important not to avoid those situations too. We have to be in the middle. Like maybe we have a situation where we can really give and maybe we're ashamed to. Or we could be very proud about it. But we have to be in the middle. Like do the good deed regardless of our attachments or obsession with yes for, for you know wanting to gain something and in our our personality and our idiosyncrasy is going to be different you know for some people you know giving money could be a source of maybe shame maybe some for some people it could be pride you know that's why there's anonymous donations right for you know yeah. so people can give without having the feeling of like oh i don't want my name broadcasted because i don't want to you know have build a pride, pride. Yeah. Back to recently you mentioned um, about master instead of like master. For example, if we get gifts because we're being meditating and awakening, and sure. some people have like um, I'm gonna say medium powers. If that's what my vocabulary can say right now, but if you can start see spirits or talk to them, but if you're not working in your ego, doesn't it it's worse if you're not like purifying yourself, becoming a very spiritual mastering can be worse. Yeah, literally, Salman Vera said the worst ego is, is uh, in a sense, mystical. Because um, it's a pride that is built on having experiences. You know, you read, and then it's like, it's good to have experiences to get some insight. But it's very easy to devolve into, I must be great because I had this vision of, so-and-so and the absolute and, and all these divine things. And we have to be very careful, you know. And in many cases, sometimes divinity will almost retract light because our pride is too fat. And it's like we have to be careful with like, okay, maybe in the beginning we get insights and, and growth and intuitions and, and experiences. But then if we come to attach them, then divinity's like, I can't give you any more because what am I building here, he says. Basically, I'm building a, a hasna moose which is a term for kind of a being who has one foot in heaven, one foot in hell. That's the origin of the mythologies of the jealous gods. You know, there are gods and beings and, and the titans, you know, who rebelled against divinity in the Greek myth, who had a lot of power, and yet they were fighting with divinity because too much pride. So that's the other danger, you know. It's also very subtle, too, and it almost is something very difficult to pinpoint because it feels good, right? Like, why feel bad about having, you know, attachment to heaven? It's very, you know, blissful. And this is why Salman Vera made a point that um, it's like almost the, the gods of the higher worlds are more tempting than, than demons. You know, demons, like your demons are attached to inflicting pain, whereas the gods are attached to happiness and love and, in, in yeah, in, the, in nirvana. It's like, and those gods will even tempt, you know, certain initiates like Salman Vyor. Because, you know, he reached the point where he's like, is he going to stay at that level or renounce it, renounce it and go higher? And so, I mean, that's the goal. I mean, but we'll have to see when we get there, you know, 
if we get there, you know, that is that really going to be the case? But yeah, it's a subtle thing. It's very, very dangerous. And we have to be very vigilant about that. I would say it's hard to find the balance of like wanting to do good, but also feel good about it. You know what I mean? Like when you give a gift, you know, it's finding that balance where it's like the pride part of it. But also, it feels good to give, you know what I mean? And there's also some sacrifice to that too. And it's not to say that one should just not feel anything. It's like, I know yeah. the idea of sounds like, oh, give up, give up your attachments to giving and feeling good. It's like, well, there's another sentiment in the consciousness that is very different and distinct from pride. Mm -hmm. You know, you know, it's a, feel, uh, it's a sentiment that, you know, actually by helping other people and benefiting them, it's a virtuous feeling of, you know, compassion and giving that doesn't take credit for itself, but is genuinely happy and content for the benefit of those people. And that's something to cultivate, but distinguishing that from, you know, the subtleties of pride, it's, that's always, that's a difficult work. Like be like, I'm a great person for giving a gift versus like, like my situation where it's, you know, I gave some money to my sister for Christmas to help them out. And I at least recognize I'm lucky enough to get that money to then give right. away. Right. You know, I'm from that standpoint where I can, I can give away and it's not going to, to hurt me in any way. Right. And that's, you know, and the, the beautiful thing is like, you know, it, nothing is, nothing exists uncompensated you know whatever we give we receive mm -hmm. according to the divine law you know if we give money eventually you know we'll get it'll come back, it'll come back in a sense you know maybe not in this life maybe in other lives maybe in the future you know it depends okay. honestly that karma is a cause and effect is a tricky thing it's hard to predict but you know honestly you know if we give of our heart that has the most power i mean there's a buddhist saying i think that you know when a bodhisattva, a master, or a person, better said, gives of food for to feed the hunger for a day, what to speak of? And that, in that sense, that gift is a miracle, you know, of unbounded virtue and value. Imagine the unsolicited gift of a divine master, a being who is really able to express the highest principles. You know, that raises, you know, food will satisfy for a day. It's a beautiful gift. But even more is the gift of matzah, the spiritual knowledge. And, the, and the, you know, not really just from teaching classes, but more from like, you know, helping them. Being around that presence. Well, also too, like, you know, seeing that in our, in our experience by giving help to people in a way that we're gifted. You know, whatever our skills and disposition is to help people where they're at and we give selflessly and consciously, that has the most benefit, and, you know. Divin material, like, yeah, yeah. But I mean, it, some of us we have we have different gifts in life, different skills, and we give what we can, whatever is our temperament and ability. But the best gift usually is one in which you may feel that desire or thought and resistance. You know, maybe it's a. Uh, I know in my case, I work with certain clients, um, and when they, you know. It's like someone comes at you and perhaps maybe angry or irritable. And my experience has been, you know, getting provoked or maybe getting resentful or angry and sacrificing that in the moment to be like, okay, I'm going to do what's right and put aside my own egotism and help this person. 
and then actually them being really grateful because it's authentic, mm-hmm. not forced. Like, sure, let me mm-hmm. let me help you here. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> while you're gritting your teeth and yeah, yeah. your you know your your mind is tell, you want to you know, your mind is scream and you're upset, but like no, you know, doing what's right, putting it aside. Yeah. You know, that's also a sacrifice. In a sense, one of the greatest sacrifices is to renounce our own ego, deny ourselves. But, you know, there's levels, right? We practice the three factors, you know, in this way. By service and sacrifice, we give what we can to our community or whoever whoever we're with. Death is precisely that understanding of the reactions of the mind and our desires that want to perpetuate problems and working on those, eliminating them. And then birth is obviously the work with the sexual energy. You have those three in union, really well-balanced, change. Circumstances which seem very difficult and it was unsolvable, resolve. It's like divinity just makes this mirage go poof. And then, you know, life changes. We change internally, then external circumstances will change. And that also gives us a lot of faith and ability to like encouragement to keep doing it, regardless of experiences or not, you know, in the sense that almost why be it, you know, again, that going back to wanting experiences, like, it's beautiful and powerful, but even more better to be a ethical person and to see the changes in your daily life, because that's where initiation lies. I had a question. Sure. Um, when you were speaking of the Christ Mass and the unleavened bread, I noticed in the image, uh, the priest was holding up a patent and he had broken bread in his hand. And it made me think of uh, the Last Supper, how Christ broke the bread and gave it to his disciples. Uh, so is there a significance to the breaking of the bread? It's the breaking of the body. In a sense, Christ was literally broken. And psychologically, we are going to be broken. You know, and uh, we face situations where, you know, we go through our passion. It's like a crucifixion. You know, obviously not literally, but, you know, he emphasized in his life what will happen spiritually. We will face the uncertainty and pain of persecution or fear or condemnation or sickness or disease or betrayal, whatever it may be, whatever our karma is. And that way, it's like we have to reach a breaking point because it's only when we face the worst situations in life that we pay what we owe. You know, in a way, it's like winter time is. We celebrate the birth of Christ in the darkest time of the year because that's metaphorically we have to face the point where we're boiling at 100 degrees Celsius, you know, where it's like you feel like you're going to snap and you're, maybe you just, you're overwhelmed. Like you have to see, in, we have to see in ourselves the point where what do we have inside? What is really there beneath the facade and the appearance of a gentleman or a, or a lady, whatever it may be, beneath the appearances we have real demons. And that will not come out unless the water is boiling. But we have to reach a kind of a, a temperance in the midst of it where, you know, in a, in a sense we're broken because it's so painful. But at the same time, that's the moment when we reach out to divinity, who is the only one who can do this work. Well, and also when when the ego is broken, that's when we have some we can give to others, right? Like he breaks the bread and gives it to his disciples. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we can give knowledge to others, but we have to break through the ego. 
I've noticed when I work on ego that I gain a lot of knowledge, spiritual knowledge about myself and other people because I'm looking at something that shouldn't be there and understanding how it got there, why it's there, and then how to remove it. And all of that process gives me something, some insight that I can then use to share with others in different situations, maybe not directly, but it informs my service of others. Yeah. Yeah, we'll know how to give more and better when there's less desire or attachment. I have a technical question. When you mention Christmas tree and Kabbalah, we don't, <laughs> we don't do that. I mean, obviously, uh, traditions with time, well, they have their birth, they're passed on, they're remembered. But then eventually, with any religion, things will eventually decline. You know, there's movements and cycles within history where when one religion is born and has life, hits a peak, it declines. And then eventually what happens is that new traditions arise, which maybe even transmute or transform the previous traditions, like a form of alchemy. And literally with Christianity, you find that the birth of Jesus on the 25th is reminiscent of many pagan uh, traditions and from antiquity. And then literally it's like all these symbols, even Dionysus turning water into wine, becomes Christ's first miracle. So it's like the traditions and the thread is there, but it often gets lost in polemics when people, if we're attached, when we're attached to traditions and what something means, in some senses, you know, it may be hard to, you know, draw comparisons or want to draw comparisons. In some cases, um, it's like they may be warranted or unwarranted, but it's good to reflect, you know, that there is value in all religion and that, you know, technically, yeah, I mean, the Christmas tree is, I think it's the Hanukkah bush now, you know, people use. It's like there's, there's a, you know, there's a division even now in today's world, division between religion, which is very, you know, very deep. And that strife goes away when we understand from experience that all these traditions are pointing to the same thing and that the conflicts between them are really a, a mirage. Yes, it is. Yeah. Muslims don't have a Christmas tree today. No. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, they still, you know, Christ is a spiritual master in, in Muslim religion. So. Prophet. Yeah. And oh, this is like the Gnostic. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. So the teachings of Samael, there, there, he has no way to to explain something in yeah. his own words. So he uses the tree of life as an example, but he's talking about some concepts that are more abstract. Yeah. yeah. This is the Gnostic teaching. There are several ways to talk about one topic. Yeah, and that's the thread that, you know, at least where we're, we're, we're coming from is that we're a Gnostic school. We teach, especially what Salman Vera wrote, because I found it to be most expedient for me in my practice and development and using what he taught to explain these traditions. And, you know, one of the foremost things we practice is tolerance, you know, we always must respect the will of our neighbor. Even the Quran, it says, there is no coercion in religion. You know? Yeah, but <laughs> Yeah, well, that's the thing. Like, you could be Christian, Muslim, Jewish, Buddhist, and be bad at it. Or be in Gnosis and be bad at it. And, you know, we're... we're and the problem is, traditions become rigid and die. 
um, part of the question that I actually had had to do with rigidity. Um, from my personal experience, I grew up in a, a Lutheran home, so I had to kind of like let that faith die to kind of be reborn in that. And what I'm discovering some difficulty within my personal journey is um, discernment specifically. And I think to use one of the images that you um, that you mentioned was um, for Isaac, um, the sacrifice of Isaac. And um, I really appreciated something that I've heard recently is about the, um, the role of meditation is accepting the responsibility in cultivating our discernment. And my question is, is um, within cultivating your discernment, you know, maybe what are some good ways that we would be able to discern when our demons look like angels or our angels look like demons? Yeah. I feel like that's where, I, you know, we can get mistaken by the ego is when something comes looking like something else. Yeah. And that's obviously, that's a lifetime work, yeah. you know, because things are so subtle. Um, there's practices that we can do too, mm -hmm. to strengthen more of our heart. I mean, the mantra, O, mm -hmm. Om or Aum, you know, mm -hmm. prolonged, maybe verbally, you can do it mentally too. Yeah. Um, especially because it's like that energy will charge the heart mm -hmm. more and give us more strength there. So it'll be able to cultivate that inner memory. Yeah, and like it, intuition is, yeah, intuition is the ability to discern what is really going on without having to think about it. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a whole new skill. I mean, that's something, that's why in the, biblically, in the New Testament, we must become like children. Yeah. It's like learning a whole new way of being. Like we were children, we became adults, we're cultured, we have knowledge, we're, we've, we're studious, and then it's like, wait a minute, there's this whole faculty I don't even know, we don't even know about. Mm -hmm. And then like going back to that, you know, and re-embracing that state that we once knew almost as a type of Edenic quality before our own fall into adolescence and adulthood. So mm -hmm. the mantra O is really good for that. Yeah. You know, literally, if you do it for an hour a day, just chant it. I mean, obviously, you can do it mentally too, but, mm -hmm. you know, especially in the beginning of concentration is difficult. It's good to vocalize it. Yeah. And then, you know, sing the mantra, basically, let it vibrate in your heart. Oh. If you do that, yeah. Om. Om. I mean, it's, a, it's Buddhist. It's also, and also, O, too. You can do O. Or Om. Either. You know, there's a lot of mantras in this tradition. You can try them. Try whatever. Even in, a, there's a more complicated one from Tibetan Buddhism. It's traditionally called Om Mani Padme Hum. But, you know, we pronounce it a little differently because... Um, and I'll explain why. We pronounce it Om Masi Padme Hume. And then originally the mantra means basically, Oh, my inner God, my inner Buddha. We translate the N into S because, yeah, so, uh, syllabically, the letter N, if you look at he even like Sanskrit and Hebrew, I mean, mm -hmm. Hebrew more so, Noon is fish in Aramaic, mm -hmm. means sperm or ovum. And when you work with the vowel S, serpent, fire, it's like you're transforming the, the energy in its base form into the fire of Christ. Yeah. So pronounced like this, Om, mm, 
And you literally hear the seven vowels we talk about, like in runic yoga, yeah. the vowels E, E, O, U, A, M. So there's, we say there's seven vowels because a vowel in a language is basically a, a nucleus that combines consonants. Mm. And spiritually speaking, we call seven vowels because they're like the conduits or the, the, the center of, of sacred mantras. Mm -hmm. And so seven vowels literally vibrate E in the crown, in the third eye, E in the throat, O in the heart, U in the solar plexus, M in the prostrated uterus, and the coccyx. Coccyx. So, seven vowels we can do. And that mantra, O my inner God, you uh, mantralize, and that works, that develops intuition very profoundly. Yeah. I was curious, would you mind repeating that with the S sound rather than the N sound? Sure. So, so the literally instead of mani, you say masi, and the s sound. Imagine like you're hissing, mm -hmm. or like hearing a serpent. Tongue goes towards the palate or towards the front teeth. And if you try this for a while, you'll sense that it's like energy rising from the base up to the head, and it's literally the sound a serpent makes. And and then religiously, all the serpents refer to the creative force, the kundalini or the Holy Spirit. That's a funny part that um, conference, the Almighty Padme, Yeah, Yum. Yeah. So, I mean, in, in traditional Tibetan, that mantra is a mantra for intuition. It means, uh, oh, my inner Buddha, or I don't remember maybe even the Dalai Lama. I know he's taught this a lot. I don't remember his explanation, but... I mean, the conventional form of Tibetan Buddhism, they taught Om Mani Padme Hum. And they say that that mantra was the reason why the Tibetans have survived for, for how long they have in the face of communism and, and all the their history. Because, I mean, it's a powerful mantra of, of really Avalokiteshvara, who is the Tibetan form of Christ. And Avalokiteshvara, as a symbol of, um, has like thousands of hands, because the compassion of Christ is omniscient, can reach out to all beings without hindrance. And then, um, but obviously the, the esoteric form of the mantra is Om Masi Padme Hum, because it also transmutes the sexual energy. But obviously this knowledge of transmutation was not taught publicly for thousands of years. It was underground. So now it's in public. So if you ask like a Lama or certain Tibetan monks, they may not know that part of their tradition. It's just, it's there though. But uh, it's also something you can verify internally too. And dreams like, you know, there's hear that mantra internally, though, the Gnostics in that dimension will teach Om Masi Padme Hum. Mm -hmm. And, but yeah, it's uh, very deep. Hey. So how does uh, yoga work to heal so somebody, just like in general? Sure. Traditionally, yoga, um, you know, there's many forms. I mean, the original term yoga simply means union. And in the West, it, since it's been taught in a materialistic sense, has been only available to, uh, in terms of like the physical calisthenics, you know, like it's just postures. That form of yoga is called Hatha Yoga. And Hatha Yoga was good for teaching meditators how to have a calm body. Meaning, in the beginning, it may be hard to sit still. You know, we have aches and pains or we're not flexible enough. We can't maintain a position for a long time. 
So yoga was excellent for Hatha yoga, for stretching the body, gaining flexibility and strength, and more importantly, getting enough um, calmness of body so that when one sits to meditate, one can sit and practice for hours. And that's why that form of yoga was practiced. But unfortunately, that teaching was only given in the physical sense, not its spiritual application. So yoga is traditionally associated with Patanjali, who wrote the Yoga Sutras. And those sutras are about meditation. I suggest if you want to know about what yoga really teaches in the spiritual sense, you can read a course called uh, Practical Spirituality on Glorian Publishing's website. Uh, breaks down the first chapter of Patanjali's sutras. And in terms of healing, you know, I mean, there's some forms of yoga which are really geared to that. We have a practice in our tradition called the Sacred Rites of Rejuvenation, which we have here. Literally, it's a uh, Really, it's six rites, six forms of ritual. Basically, you take postures and form a, in some of these uh, positions where you combine prayer, meditation, and you know inspiration, and also pranayama. You do a lot of transmutation with this, where you pray to your own inner divine mother, or oh, you can see in the image here with uh, the seven chakras, you have, uh, I think, either Lakshmi or Durga, you know, the Divine Feminine, many names for that, the Holy Spirit. This is the feminine aspect of God, the Virgin Mary. And you ask her, please intercede for me before your Divine Husband, the Holy Ghost, the masculine form. So you have Shiva Shakti. It's like the male-female part of divinity, father, mother, and she's the wife of, you know, Shiva. You ask that he heal you. And you can do these, you know, these prayers. You pray for the same thing, ask for healing, maybe even physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually. You can even ask for understanding and comprehension of certain um, defects and heal your internal states. Practice that. You know, you can do it. You can even do this in like 15 minutes easily. It doesn't take too long. If you get into it, you can do it for hours. I mean, it can be really profound. We give um, a lecture about it in a, our website. It's called Yoga for the Aquarian Era. Yeah, I recommend you study that. It goes. We explain a lot of how to do this. And I'm sure Glorian Publishing will have videos available soon for how to do it, you know, visually. We've, they've been meaning to do that for a long time, but a lot of things came up and eventually they're, they're working on it. So we can close for a you know, break. Thank you all for coming. Thank you. Thank you very much. To learn more about the knowledge covered in this lecture, we invite you to study the books available through Glorian Publishing or GnosticTeachings.org. You can also view free online courses, lectures, transcriptions, and articles available at ChicagoGnosis.org. All of this is made possible by the support of listeners like you. Have you benefited from this knowledge? Help others by making a tax-deductible donation at chicagognosis.org. We thank you for listening. We hope that these lectures aid you in developing your complete and divine potential. May all beings be happy. May all beings be joyful. May all beings be in peace.